And what I found out when I got there were things that shame on me. I should have already known that 18 families in the poorest village in South Africa are being supported by families from this church. Shame on me for not knowing that. And then I got to this, um, this house stored with food that Mama runs. Mama in the village. That's what they call her, Mama. And she is this older black African woman. Fifty families come to that house to get cornmeal, potatoes, and just enough supplies for 50 families to live. Crossroads does a lion's share of that. And I bless God for, for this family. I bless God for the partnership that we have with all nations and with uh, what's going on at Love's Door. And uh, sorry that you had a pastor that was unaware of the things that your church is doing. And I'm only that much more excited about what, what the future holds in these partnerships. They love us. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> okay. And this is exciting, you guys, because Crossroads is not a top-down church. We are an organic, bottom-up priesthood of believers. We do not, like, have people who sit around a table and come up with what God wants us to do and then give those orders to you, but rather we believe that God speaks to you and gives you callings and dreams of the kingdom of heaven, and we pour gasoline on those fires, okay? Does that make sense? That's who we are at Crossroads, okay? And um, we have uh, Dr. Switzer, who's been actually going to this church for a while, and he is going to be going to Honduras. So Dr. Switzer, if you could quickly come up here. Um, we, as a leadership team, never would have dreamed this dream, but God put this dream of the kingdom of heaven in you, and if you could quickly share what this looks like, what you're going to be doing. Yeah, I've been going since 1991, and, and this year we're going to central Honduras. There's a team of 23 of us that leave Friday for eight days, six of whom are physicians, four of whom are construction workers. There's a missionary in central Honduras from Grand Rapids, who I knew as a patient before she left. And we're going to go down there. We're going to serve the people of central Honduras. The four construction team members will stay on the mission compound and do building projects, repair, uh, build classrooms for the school that they have started down there. The rest of us each day will load up into four-wheel drive vehicles or buses or whatever we can find that will get us up into the mountain villages, which are very remote and have no access to health care, basically. And we will run clinics through the local churches. The local pastor will set that up. We'll arrive in the morning. There will be two to 300 people lined up waiting to see us. We'll run clinic all day, go back down, spend the night in the mission compound, load up the next day and go to another mountain village and provide medical care for these folks. <laughs> And this is the best. And our universities today say, you know what, you know what the kingdom of heaven is? You know what church Christianity is? It's slavery and it's the crusades and it's the inquisition. No, it's not. It's this. It's this. And Dr. Switzer's been going to our church for a long time, and he too, like our church, is probably someone that's just under the radar, getting dreams of the kingdom and seeing the kingdom of heaven unleashed through his humble efforts. Let's pray for this guy right now. Um, let's do it the way we do it. If we can put you in the middle, and uh, let's pray for his team and all that they're going to be doing. I love it that you guys know what to do. I don't even have to tell you what to do. (laughs) 
excellent is your name in all the earth. We're so We just pray that as they go to a remote corner in Honduras, that your spirit would be upon them. Thank you that you promised to protect their coming and their going out. We pray that you bring them back safely, rejoicing, bringing their sheep as they go forth weeping with seed, precious seed, and that you would let there be gospel fruit from them, that Christ would be lifted up and draw Yeah. God, that, that prayer really captures it. Um, we just thank you for Dr. Switzer, and we thank you for his style. Um, such humility. Um, someone who just does so much, just under the radar, behind the scenes. And, um, and I just pray all your anointing upon him. I pray that you give him everything that he needs. And that you'd go before him and you'd go with him and with this team and you'd do a great work, your work, in, in Honduras. And God, we are more the church right now as we are all stand, standing up and huddled around each other than we are when we're going to be sitting in our individual seats. You are raising up an army. And you are sending this army into the world. And I just pray that all of us right now would be like Isaiah in Isaiah 6. After he saw your holiness and you said, whom will I send? That every one of us, Lord, would say, hear my Lord, send me. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, while you guys are walking back to your seat, because every moment today is precious, (laughs) which is a little bit of a... Heads up, I I have a lot to communicate, or hopefully God does, through our text, through me. Um, Let's turn to Matthew 26 in our Bibles, continuing our journey through Matthew, coming to the climactic part of of Matthew's gospel. And if you have a blue Bible like mine, this is found on page 807. And take a little second to sit right now because I'm going to ask you to stand. 
Matthew 26, begin at verse 1. Let's stand for God's word. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, boy, what, what things he just got done saying, huh? About um, the nations gathered before the Son of Man as, as the Son of Man judges them. He said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away. And the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. And then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly, covertly, to kill him. And notice who these people are. It's not just the Jewish people, but it's the religious people, the chief priests, the elders, the people assembled. Um, But listen to their thing. They say, not during the feast, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. See, they understand. The people, for the most part, are with Jesus. Of course, then you have that next great story when Jesus is at Bethany and Mary comes uh, because she knows what is about to happen and she anoints Jesus' feet. And I love how Jesus puts this in verse 13. He says, the poor you'll always have with you with you, but you will not always have me. And she has poured this perfume on my body. She did it to prepare me for my burial. Mm, It's beautiful. And then Judas uh, agrees with the religious people who want to kill Jesus to betray him. They come up with a plan on how this can work. And then our text, our main text today is verse 17. On the first day of the feast of matzah, unleavened bread, The disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, well, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the rabbi says, my appointed time is near and I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12. Of course, that's how you sit at Passover. Uh, You don't sit in your chairs, but this is one day when you eat like kings and queens, and so you eat reclining. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one will betray me. And they were very sad and began to say to him, And after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It is better for him if he had never been born. And then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, do you, Rabbi? And Jesus answered, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of this vine from now or until that day when I drink it anew with you at the marriage feast of the Lamb. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And, of course, the next scene is Gethsemane. So this is God's word. You can be seated. Of 
course, this is a story that we are, most of us are very familiar with. It'd be fun if we could just read this with fresh eyes. And I think we actually can today. Um, And I think you'll see why. I want to start with verse 2, where Jesus begins by saying, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. There you have that title that Jesus loves, that that title, the Son of Man. Of course, who is the Son of Man? Jesus takes this title, but it's that Daniel 7 um, depiction of one like a Son of Man, one who is in the appearance of a human, who comes in the clouds of heaven, And he approaches the great throne of the living God as this great warrior. That's what Daniel 7 is depicting. In fact, I want you to see what he's describing in Daniel 7. Because Daniel gets this vision from God. And this whole vision begins with four evil beasts that come out of the sea to dominate the world. But then all of a sudden, Daniel sees this dramatic change of events. The beasts are slain. Their dominion is taken away. And Daniel says, and I kept looking. I kept looking. He wants to know why. What's going on? And then it says, and he sees one like the Son of Man coming in the clouds. Now, coming in the clouds is something we read a lot in the New Testament. I want you to know he's not coming from heaven in the clouds to earth, but he's coming from earth in the clouds to heaven. And he presents himself before the Ancient of Days. And here's how I picture this. And we need to see this because we live in a world right now where there are evil beasts and it looks like they dominate things. But this is what I picture. This great warrior with sword in one hand and in the other hand, the heads of these beasts. And as this great warrior king, he approaches the living God as the great victor, as the great dragon slayer, as the one worthy of all glory and all honor. And when the Almighty sees this one like a son of man, he puts him and exalts him to the highest place where he's put in charge of all things, where all authority on earth is given to him. And that's the picture. In Daniel 7. It's no wonder then that the Jews of Jesus' day were expecting this great Davidic warrior king, one who would finally come and slay the dragon. In fact, that's what we get in Matthew 25. Jesus has just gotten done telling his disciples, the Son of Man, all the peoples of the earth are going to be gathered before his throne, and he's going to have dominion over all of them, and he's going to judge them. But now Jesus says something that's not so shocking to us, but it certainly would have been shocking to them. He says the Son of Man will be delivered up. And he's going to be the one slain. What do you mean? This great victor? Delivered up? Crucified? And the Son of Man is supposed to be the deliverer, not the one who's delivered up. He's the one who's going to slay the evil dragon, not be slain by it. And see, we could never understand this if we didn't have a 
a broader biblical context. This is why God gives us more than just a verse like John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, uh, but have everlasting life. He doesn't just give us that kind of verse. He gives us the Bible. And see, as great as even something like John 3.16 is, you could never understand that verse fully without a context. And that's why we have John 3 verse 15 which says, just as the snake was lifted up in the wilderness. That's a reference to Numbers 21. The snake attached the pole. When people looked at it, they lived. So the Son of Man must be lifted up that way, like a snake attached to a pole. For God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten Son. Now, Matthew's context is the Feast of Passover. And we can't fully understand this text without understanding Passover. The Son of Man crucified is placed in this context. I want you to show you uh, in our text how often Passover is mentioned. First of all, in verse 2, the Passover is two days away. Then in verse 5, during the feast... Then you jump down to verse 17, the festival of unleavened bread, which is attached to the feast of Passover. Um, Again in that verse, um, where are we going to eat the Passover? Then in verse 18, it says, to celebrate the Passover with my disciples. And then um, 19, they're preparing for the Passover. So Passover, this feast. Now let me say a word about the feasts. Christians today know so little about the feasts. And the reason for this is we just assume, well, they're Jewish. So we dismiss them. Well, guess what? Jesus is a Jew. (laughs) The disciples are Jews. Paul is a Jew. Since when do we dismiss part of God's word because it's Jewish? The whole Bible, with the exception of maybe Luke and Acts, is Jewish. And these feasts didn't just evolve out of the Jewish culture. In fact, go to Leviticus 23 with me. If you have a blue Bible like mine, this is found on page 98. This is one of the passages where the feasts are, 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 are mentioned, are listed. It begins with this. The Lord says to Moses... Speak to the Israelites and say to them, these are my appointed feasts. The appointed feasts of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. See, God's saying, these are my feasts. In fact, this word feast in the original language simply means appointment. God's saying, these are my appointments. In other words, God's saying, I want you to get out your calendar because I'm going to schedule in your calendar appointments that you're going to have with me. These are going to be divine appointments when you're going to meet with me and I'm going to meet with you. I love this because we might call these things Jewish feasts, but God calls them my appointments. And then when you look at Leviticus 23, what does God's calendar begin with? Sabbath. 
And basically what God is saying here is six days a week, you get to make the appointments, but one day a week, I get to make, it, make the appointment, and I'm going to make that appointment where you spend a whole day with me. Oh, but we dismiss this because it's Jewish. In fact, God then, if you read Leviticus 23, he puts seven more appointments on their calendars. Some of these appointments are a week long, where they're instructed to stop everything they're doing and meet with God in the way he prescribes. In fact, three of these feasts, they're all week long. God says, I want you to present yourself before me in Jerusalem. Does anyone know what those three feasts are? I'm just asking to see how much we know about the feast. <laughs> see, we don't know. Unleavened bread, Passover, what else? What? Tabernacles, Sukkot, what else? Pentecost, Shavuot. Very good. See, God, he designed these things. He shaped these things for a specific pur- purpose. In fact, in Leviticus 23 verse 1, where your NIV translates this, uh, sacred assemblies, um, the word there is, is, a, is a convocation. And the, in the original language, convocation simply means a rehearsal. I mean, think about a wedding. Every wedding has a rehearsal. Every wedding I'm, I've ever done has a rehearsal, a dress rehearsal. And anyone who is going to be in the wedding must be there. One, because it mirrors the wedding. Two, because it prepares them for the wedding. But it's not the wedding. This is what the feasts are. They're dress rehearsals. They're preparing God's people for the main event, which is the coming of Messiah. And I want you to think about that for a moment because you have to see what God is doing. For 1,500 years leading up to Christ, God, through these feasts, is rehearsing his coming. In fact, if I had time right now, I could take you through Leviticus 23 and these seven feasts that are here, and I could tell you the whole story of Christ's first coming and his second coming. Now, the greatest of these rehearsals, these God appointments, is Passover. Passover is a one-day feast celebrated in the spring, on April 14, their April's called Nisan, April 14. And this feast celebrates the defining moment of their story when God looked at the world and he took the least of all peoples who are living in chaos as slaves in Egypt and God provides an exodus, a way out, a way out of the bondage, a way out of Egypt, a way out of the chaos, And God takes this least people as his own. How did God do it? He sent his rider on the white horse over the land of Egypt to execute judgment, to take the debt that they all owed, the firstborn son. But wherever this rider saw the blood of a lamb painted on the doorpost of a home, that family was spared. So think about it. That night in Egypt, in every home, there was either a dead firstborn son or a dead lamb. 
Now, the word Passover in the original language actually means protection. In fact, in Isaiah 31, verse 5, where this word is used, this is what it says. It says, like a hovering bird over its young. Can you picture it? Hovering bird over its young. The Lord Almighty will shield you. He will protect you. He will pass over you and deliver you. And I can't think of help but think of the words of Jesus, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, how I long to be like a mother bird and, and, and you taking refuge in the protection of my wings. Passover. Now Jesus in our text today is celebrating Passover. In fact, look at verses uh, 17 and 18. So on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? This was important to Jesus. And now listen to what he says. Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the rabbi says, my appointed time. (laughs) It's right out of Leviticus 23. My appointed time is near. And so the disciples did as as Jesus had directed, and they prepared for the Passover. It's kind of like Jesus is saying, okay, we're going to have one, one last rehearsal before the main event. Now, by the time of Jesus, the Passover had become something very specific. It was a three to four hour family meal in the evening. It had a very specific menu. There was a specific plate of food that everybody ate. There was a specific Seder or liturgy to the night that the Father would lead them through. And I see Jesus doing all this. I can tell you a few things right now that were on the disciples' plate that night. Because in Exodus 12, verse 8, God gives specific instructions about Passover. He says there's three things you must eat on Passover. You must eat lamb, you must eat matzah, matzah is bread without yeast, And you must also eat maror, which are the bitter herbs. And I'll start with the lamb. Because the lamb is the centerpiece of this celebration. God instructs each family to get a one-year-old lamb, a lamb without blemish or defect. How many days before Passover does God instruct them to get this? Four days. So in Jesus' day, a family would try to arrive in Jerusalem at least four days before Passover so they could go to the temple, get their lamb. Oftentimes, this would be a family event, much like you might pick out your Christmas tree. And I want you to feel the significance of this because it's not like they went to Myers at the last minute and took the last thing on sale. This lamb became part of their family, and each person in the family was to spend time with that lamb, get to know that lamb, because they were going to identify with that lamb. That lamb was their deliverance. On the day of the Passover meal, the dad, maybe with his boys, would go to temple with the lamb. They'd present the lamb to a priest, the priest would take the lamb into his arms. You take out a blade. And right before the father and if the sons were there, he'd slit the ram's throat or the lamb's throat. Another priest would have a cup and collect the blood. 
The cup then would be taken to the altar. The blood would be poured on the altar. The lamb would then be flayed, be put on a stick. They'd carry the lamb back to be cooked and eaten as the main course for the Passover meal that night. Now listen to this. Josephus tells us that 250,000 lambs were slaughtered in Jesus' day during Passover. Each lamb produced a quart of blood. You're talking about 250,000 quarts of blood in a short amount of time. Now the temple had these huge water cisterns where they would just unleash all this water to bathe the temple. All that water mixed with blood would then be uh, guttered all the way down into the Kidron Valley, forming a river that flowed all the way to Bethlehem. Now, because I've been there, and I'd love to take you there, I'd love to be there right now with you, but look at verse 30. It said, when they had sung a hymn, and I can tell you exactly what hymn they sung because it's in their liturgy. That goes all the way back to the time of Jesus. They sang the halal. What's the halal? (laughs) Sing it. (laughs) Not today. If I wasn't sick, I might. No. Um, It's Psalm 113 through 118. Psalm 118, I want you to feel this, ends with what? The stone the builders rejected has become this capstone, and this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And for Jesus to get from where they they were eating this meal to Gethsemane, I'm telling you, he walked through this river of blood or over it if there was some kind of bridge, which there probably was. And I can't help but think about Jesus as he's walking over all all this blood from all these lambs. (laughs) Now today, no lamb is required at a Passover Seder. Does anybody know why? There's no temple. If there's no temple, there's no temple sacrifice. So instead, on each plate today, you have a shank bone from a lamb to remind them of the lamb. You also have an egg. The egg reminds them of the sacrifice of that lamb and the life that that lamb would bring them. Next, after eating the lamb, they would also eat the bitter herbs, the marar, marar, um, which basically today is mainly horseradish. Have you ever had a spoonful of horseradish? <laughs> and see, the marar, which means is, is, is from the word mara, which is bitter, represents the bitterness of slavery. And what they also recognized is not only can a person be a slave in Egypt, but a person can also be a slave to worse things like sin. And so in this meal, they don't want to just talk about slavery. They don't want to just talk about slavery to sin, but they want to taste it. In fact, Jewish fathers are known to take a whole spoonful of this stuff and just shove it down their kid's throat until tears literally go down their faces because they want their kid to taste the effects of sin which leads to slavery. You choose to sin. You choose to suffer. Now, 
I actually see this in our text when you look at verses 21 and 23. And there it says, And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sad and began to say to one another, Surely you don't mean me, Lord, do you? And Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand in the bowl with me will betray me. And I believe with all my heart, this is Jesus' way of telling, telling Judas a few things. Judas, you know what? You have become Mara. You have become bitter. And you are going to cause great suffering. Okay, after the, the, the bitter herbs, there's the matzah, which is the bread without yeast. And the... the, the the feast, actually, of Passover is followed the next day by what feast? Does anybody know? Yeah, the Feast of Matzah, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. goes for seven days, immediately following the day after Passover. And what they did for this feast is they scoured their houses of all yeast. And I mean scoured. They went into every cupboard, every drawer, looked under every piece of furniture, went into every closet. All houses were scoured of this yeast. Not only that, but no food with yeast could be eaten. Why? Well, to remind them of the first Passover, when the angel of death passed over, uh, they didn't have time for the bread to rise, so... Let's, for seven days, remember that by having no yeast. Now, yeast to them, too, is fermentation, right? And therefore, it becomes the biblical symbol for what? Sin. Decay. Namely, the sin of pride, because pride puffs a person up. And see, once the smallest amount of yeast gets into the dough, it spreads rapidly. Now, I remember uh, when we were living in Israel, I woke up one day and I saw all these um, big garbage, what are those things where you, where, where you burn things? Yeah, an incinerator. I mean, those, those, those dumpster things. Outside of five-star hotels, burning stuff. I'm like, what's going on here? Well, t- the next day was Passover. All their bread was put in these incinerators. They were burning it. They were getting rid of it. And I want us to see the picture of this because sometimes I think we can take sin in our lives flippantly like it's not that big of a deal. It's leaven. It's going to spread through the whole dough if we don't cut it off. Are we going to get our houses clean? Are we going to scour our lives of sin? Do you remember when we studied uh, King Hezekiah and Josiah when they reinstituted Passover? I love this. Massive house cleaning took place. They scoured the whole land and removed every single idol. You know what the text says about the Passovers that were celebrated? There was never a Passover like it, either before or after it. At the Passover meal, each person was given three large matzah, which were placed in a pouch. Right away, you should ask, well, why three? 
Well, the Jewish Midrash is that it represents their three fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because then, very early in the meal, the father takes the middle cracker of the pouch, which represents Isaac. He breaks it in half because this represents what happened to Isaac when he was placed on the altar. He's the middle patriarch. In fact, the Jewish Midrash today even goes further and says at the first Passover, the reason why the angel of death passed over is because he saw the sacrifice of Isaac on the doorposts of our homes. That that just blows me away because they're so close. So anyway, um, the one half of that thing, that second matzah, um, is eaten. The other half of it is wrapped in a white napkin. The father then takes that and hides it someplace in the room because later, the last thing that's done following the meal is he'll have the kids go look for it. Whatever kid finds it, brings it back to the father and and receives a prize. In fact, this piece of of matzah is called the afikoman. The afikoman is the very last thing eaten. The father takes this afikoman and he again breaks it into pieces. He passes it around for everyone to eat. And because it's the last thing eaten, it represents the lamb. Therefore, everybody eats. And I see this in our text. Look at verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he broke it into pieces, giving one piece each to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Now ask yourself this question first. Why did Jesus take a piece of bread and not a piece of lamb? Well, one, because Jesus is the lamb. And instead of taking a piece of lamb, Jesus takes the substitute for the lamb, the afikoman, and then tells his disciples, I am the afikoman. I am this piece of matzah, this unleavened, sinless bread, which is broken and then wrapped and buried away and then brought back to the Father, and this represents me. I'm the Passover lamb that protects and covers you I am the Isaac laid upon the altar in your place. Take it. Eat it. Does anybody know what afikoman means? It's actually a Greek word, and it's the only non-Hebrew word that has made it into a modern Passover Seder. Jews to this day just think afikoman means dessert because it's the last thing eaten. But I think when you get to the original meaning of this word, it's stunning. It means he came. Because Passover is no longer a rehearsal. It no longer points forward to the main event. He came. Now listen, I'm not done because by the time of Jesus, the meal had already been built around four cups of wine that were be to draw, they were to uh, drink throughout the course of the meal. And some of you are thinking, holy cow, they drank four cups of wine? Well, first of all, you have to remember a few things. Number one, the wine was mixed with water, but it's still wine. Number two, it's over the course of three or four hours. Number three, maybe you could say that 
God and the Jewish people aren't that prudish towards wine, but very respectful towards it at the same time. Okay? Now, why four cups? Well, they're based on the four promises that are in Exodus 6, verses 6 and 7, which says, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. And then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I want you to know, when a Jew thinks salvation, it's this. It's Exodus. And there are four parts to God's salvation in Exodus 6, 6 through 7. And the four cups represent these four elements. So at the very beginning of the night, at the very outset, the father takes the first cup of wine and he says, this is God's promise that God will bring us out. That he is going to set us free from our bondage. That's salvation. Then a little bit later in the meal, the cup right before the meal, the father takes the second cup. This is called the cup of God's promise. And it's, it's, I will deliver you. Because slaves need more than freedom. They need to be delivered from their slave nature and their slave identity. Then after the meal is eaten, after the father during the meal tells the story of God's exodus, He takes out the third cup, which is called the cup of redemption. And this is God's promise that I will redeem you. This is the promise of new birth, of being made whole, of being born again. And then the question remains, but what happens if we fall back in Egypt? Well, then you have the fourth cup, which is drunk at the very end. And it's God's promise that I will take you. And take you is a word for I will marry you. I will take you to be... Um, as my bride. You're going to get my presence. You're going to get my protection. I don't know what you're thinking right now, but when I see all of this, this moves me because when I gave my life to God, this is what he did for me. He brought me out. He took me out of Egypt, the mud and the mire, the chaos. Living life for me, he set me free. He delivered me. I'm no longer a slave. I no longer have a slave nature or a slave identity because now I'm his treasured son. I hear him saying to me, my son in whom I delight, in whom I love. He redeemed me. He healed me. He made me whole from the inside out. Right now I'm born again. And he didn't even stop there, but he took me to himself. I am his. He is mine. His presence right now lives in me and he protects me. That's salvation. When you piece all of these things together, I see at least three cups in all the gospel accounts. Luke's gospel has the cup before dinner, so this would either be the first or second cup. Then you have the cup after dinner, which is the third cup, and that's here in Matthew 26, verse 27. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. He took the cup of redemption, and he said, Redemption is now through me. It's through my 
blood, which is poured out for the many. The word for there means in the place of. It's my blood in the place of your blood for the forgiveness of sins. So what about the fourth cup? We'll look at verse 29. Jesus refrains actually from drinking that. He says, I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine uh, from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. In other words, I'm going to wait to drink this fourth cup until the wedding feast of the Lamb. Now listen, by the time of Jesus, there's, there's, there's another cup called what? It's the fifth cup. The Bible speaks about this fifth cup in verses like Jeremiah 25, where it says, this is what the Lord said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send it to drink it. And when they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. This cup is called Elijah's cup. It's called Elijah's cup to this day because Malachi 3 and 4 say that when Elijah comes, Messiah is going to follow. And when Messiah comes, he's going to bring the cup of God's wrath. That's going to cause men to stagger, to go mad. I know some of you right now, when you hear this about God, it just, it bothers you. You're like, this feels so outdated that we're still talking about a God who gets angry. Let me tell you something. He's holy. He is absolutely holy hates sin. He hates it. And see, the ancients understood something about God that we moderns have forgotten. They understood that the firstborn always belonged to God. Look at Israel. Firstborn of the flocks, firstborn of the herds, the first fruits, it was God's. The firstborn of the people, the Levites, it was God's. God says to them, the life of the firstborn is mine. When you read Numbers 18 and Exodus 13, you're going to see what God is saying to Israel is, the life of the firstborn, it must be forfeited unless it is redeemed through a payment and a sacrifice. Now the reason for this, there's a debt. There's a debt that every family owes to God. A debt greater than our own lives. A debt of our firstborn. You see, the ancients understood this. They understood the debt of their sin that everyone must pay to meet the demands of a holy, just God. And see, this is what is going on at Passover. God is unleashing his perfect justice. Pay up, people. I'm taking your firstborn. It belongs to me. And you go through the biblical story, and you look at these almost like two aspects of God that create this tension. God's holiness and his justice combined with his compassion and his grace and his love. And you ask yourself, okay, how is this going to get resolved? How can a just God be merciful? And how can a merciful God be just? And you're asking yourself, okay, what's going to win out here? Is it going to be God's justice or is it going to be God's grace? And I want you to think about this because without God's justice, 
evil in our world right now would go unpunished. Think about that. Think about all the evil in our world right now, just like grace. But see, without God's grace, we're all like righteous Isaiah who's in the presence of God saying, woe is me. I'm ruined. What's going to win? A lamb. A lamb. Genesis 22, it starts here as Abraham and Isaac are making this three-day trek to Moriah. And Isaac, in the middle of this trek, just says, all right, Dad, look, we have the stuff for the sacrifice. Where's the lamb? Abraham looks at his son. He says, God will provide the lamb. That's the story of the Bible. And then here we are in the Exodus. And you have to ask yourself, what wins? What, what finally defeats Pharaoh? What finally sets them free? It's not even the signs and the wonders. It's the slain lamb and its blood that covered them and protected them. And then throughout their history, day after day, these lambs are sacrificed to remind them that they're debtors, they're debtors, but the God of the universe, he loves us, and he promises to keep his covenant to us, to love us, to protect us, to be a husband to us, to cover us. But yet all these lambs, all this blood, it's just a rehearsal. It's just a rehearsal. One day a lamb would come, would take away the sins of the world. What you need to know is that God had every right to pour that fifth cup of his wrath on all people. And see, this is what Gethsemane is all about. The father places the fifth cup before the son and says, Son, will you drink it? Will you be the lamb's son? And Jesus says, Not my will. Your will be done. He drank the cup. He took upon himself all God's wrath for all sin and he became the justice of God and the grace of God. He became the lamb slain. The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He lost in that moment in that moment, God's protection and God's covering that he had with God throughout all eternity. And in this moment, God did not pass over him, but God crushed him. So we could be protected and covered. And he did this for people who rejected him and mocked him and crucified him for people like us who failed him. He drank it. He drank every last drop. You know what Peter says? First Peter 1, 18 through 20, he says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. And Peter's right. It's such an empty life. It's been handed down to us from our ancestors. You weren't redeemed by by perishable things. He says, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but he was revealed in these last days for your sake. 
In other words, God's plan before he even made the world is that he would redeem the world, he would save the world, he would renew the world through a lamb slain. And he'd become it. And why did he do it? Because this holy, holy, holy God loves you. He loves you. And you think this demands a response? In Revelation 5, John, who's writing this, he's, he's weeping profusely. Because the scroll can't be unraveled. In other words, the the, the prayers to your kingdom come can't be answered. The beast, the beast is going to win if this scroll can't be opened. And then an elder says, "Uh, no, 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 stop, John. Look, the great lion of Judah, he can open the scroll. He can win. And John says, and then I looked. When I looked at this great warrior... I saw a lamb as if it had been slain. And it says, and I saw the lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from Zambia, South Africa, from Honduras, from every tribe and language and people. And I looked and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, 10,000 upon 10,000. They encircled the throne. In a loud voice, they were worshiping, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive wealth, power, strength, and glory. That's how you respond. You worship. He's so worthy. Jesus didn't just give us a set of propositions. He didn't just tell the world that God loves us. God gave us a person. And this person on a cross. He says, I love you. And he gave us a meal so we could taste and see that he's good. So let's end today. And if you're like maybe the woman at Jesus' feet in Matthew 26, and you're ready, your heart's just there to worship. The table's set. Take, eat, and drink. In Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Please pray with me. God, you say in the fullness of time, in the fullness of time, and until that time came, God, you gave, you gave rehearsal after rehearsal after rehearsal after rehearsal so that we could know that when the main event was here, we could see it and understand it. And so today, Lord, not only do I pray that the eyes of our heart could see and understand 
all that you are and all that you have done in Christ, but that we would taste and see that you are good. You are good. And we take it in. All of it. In Jesus' name. What's at the table?